welcome back everybody to the fifth in our Digging Deep series and thanks for coming this evening. I'm really impressed that you've come on such a nice evening. Maybe the only one of the summer, as Simon said this morning. <coughs> Tonight's subject is understanding. Now I'm not going to be trying to teach you all how to be nice and understanding. No, it's something quite different, completely different. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, before we get to that, I wanted to do a really quick recap on where we've got to so far. We've been doing this for a while now, since the beginning of the year. Uh, for those of you that might have missed one, um, or for those of you who are struggling to remember what we've talked about already, I thought we could do a quick recap. So our first session, if you remember, back in January was living. And we thought about the why and the who of evangelism and how our changing culture might affect the how of evangelism. Then we had relating, and we, we thought about um, the idea of relational evangelism, each of us building relationships with the people that we know, uh, earning the right to share the message that we have with them. And then we thought a bit more deeply about listening, and how listening to those we know builds relationships. Uh, and allows us to get close enough to people for them to be willing to listen to us. And then last time, we thought again about how effective sharing our story can be and how each of us has a story that we can tell that uh, our friends can relate to. Now, if you've missed one of those, uh, it would be great to get it on the podcast, apart from the last one, which wasn't uh, recorded, but you can listen to the others and recap. Now, now that we know where we've all been, uh, let's think about where we're going. And I, I actually want to tell you a story. Do you remember the Easter weekend? Do you remember how cold it was? And do you remember the snow that we had out there on Easter Sunday? Hard to believe now, isn't it? Well, on the Saturday, some of the Kite family and the Harris family went on a walk. We dropped Jacob and Joel <coughs> off at Charlie's party in Dedham and decided to go for a walk together, which would end at the local tea shop, before going back to pick up the boys. Good idea, we thought at the time. So Simon took charge to lead us, and it must come naturally, he directed us to the car park, consulted the map there, and we set off with brilliant blue skies overhead. The plan was to walk along one side of the river cross over a footbridge about a mile or so up the river and then walk across the other bank back into town with the tea shop as our final destination. Now it wasn't long before the children realised that this wasn't going to be as much fun as we told them it was going to be. <laughs> Apparently, so Rachel told me, their dad is always taking them on these long boring walks and getting them lost. I was a bit worried, but I decided that I could probably trust Simon, uh, so we, we continued on. It started to snow, and the wind was howling, and the path was getting really muddy, and in fact, sometimes quite dangerously close to the edge of the river. The kids, yeah, the kids were mostly crying or complaining. <laughs> they were, apart from Alid, who was completely covered in mud. 
which he thought was just great. <laughs> now, the grown-ups were beginning uh, to get a bit concerned, particularly when we passed a bend in the river and Simon said, Oh dear, I think this is where the bridge is supposed to be. <laughs> well, there wasn't a bridge at all, just a kind of broken down jetty. Now, putting a brave face on things, we decided to carry on for a while, sure that just ahead of us there must be a bridge. Five minutes passed, no bridge, and it was getting colder and colder, and it was actually quite difficult to see where we were going. Now, the thing was, we couldn't turn back because there was this other group of walkers catching us up, and you don't like to lose face in these situations, do you? <laughs> As they kind of overtook us, took us, we kind of laughed and said, do you happen to know where the bridge is? Uh, but they didn't, you see, because they'd never been that way before either. Anyway, they passed us and walked ahead because they didn't have small children and buggy. We were considering giving up. The howling of the children was becoming completely impossible to bear. It was no good. The sensible thing was to give up on the tea shop altogether and just go home. But then, quite suddenly, we heard shouting. And it was coming from just ahead. And you know what? It was the people who just passed us a few minutes before. They were shouting to attract our attention, and they were pointing. And we all looked to where they were pointing. And then we saw it. You guessed it. It was the bridge. It was literally just around the bend in the river. We'd been looking down because of the snow and hadn't seen it. And we couldn't see what was right in front of our eyes. Boy, we were really pleased to see it. So we gathered momentum and crossed the bridge to the other side. And I have to say, it did look a bit greener on the other side. Mm -hmm. It was left muddy anyway. Our final destination was sure now. And what a difference that made to the rest of our journey. And tea and cake never tasted so good. Now, what on earth has that got to do with tonight's subject? Well, I want to introduce you to the idea that our lives are a journey and we're on a journey, and the idea of the journey to faith. And especially how someone coming to faith is on a journey. It seems to me that people seem to come to faith gradually. They travel a path of discovery about God towards him and then they decide to cross that bridge <coughs> to be converted or saved, you might call it. And then they continue the journey with him. Now sometimes the journey to God is just too hard and people turn back before they find the bridge. They kind of give up on God altogether. Maybe because there's no one to show them the right way. Or maybe they get lost on the, on the other side and can't find the bridge and never do. Maybe if there was someone to show them where the bridge was, they might be able to cross it. On our walk that day, all we really needed was a signpost saying, bridge, this way. But there wasn't one. And we couldn't see the bridge for ourselves. So needed the people ahead of us on the path to be signposts for us. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about tonight. So, if conversion is a journey, how can we be effective signposts 
pointing people towards God and not away. Simon's talked about earlier. Well, first thing is we need to know where people are on the journey. It's true, isn't it? The first thing you need to know when you're giving directions is, where are you now? I know that quite a few people got lost yesterday uh, on the Samaritan's Purse walk. And actually, <laughs> actually, uh, Tez and Kevin got lost even before they got there. <laughs> she wouldn't mind, I did ask. Their sat-nav um, didn't get them to the right starting point. And so she rang me in the morning to get directions. Where on earth is this place we're supposed to be going? The first thing I said to Tez was, where are you now? And they said, we're in Holywell's Park. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> okay, I said, go out of the car park and turn left. And then I gave her instructions on how to get to the, the wood that they needed to go to. So knowing where they were, I could easily direct them in the right direction. If I didn't know where they were, I would have had no hope at all of getting them in the right direction. So the next thing to be effective signposts, we need to be the right sign at the right <coughs> time. It's all about timing, you see. It's no good giving somebody a direction if it's not the next one that they need. Have you ever been to Land's End? Yes. yes. <laughs> you missed out. I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> if you've been there, now I was trying to find a photo of me there, kind of age 12, but I, it was too embarrassing. Anyway, it was embarrassing. If you go to Land's End, there's this sign. You might have seen it. And it says, New York, 3,147 miles that way. And it says, John O'Groats, 300 and something miles that way. And you can and yeah, and you can put your your own hometown on the sign and they'll put the number of miles and they'll say, that way. And you can have your um, photo taken underneath it, if you like. <laughs> now, lovely as that sign is, uh, you'd have to agree that it's totally useless. <laughs> I could never find my way home from there with just one signpost. What I need is a sign at each crossroads or roundabout to tell me which way I need to go. A bit like the sat-nav, which way do I go next? So can you see that in someone's journey to faith, it's really no good starting with evidence for God creating the world if the person doesn't even know that they think there's a God at all. Or going straight in with their need for forgiveness to free them from guilt if they can't see that there's anything that they need to be forgiven for. And neither do we want to start too far back. Laying all the evidence for the existence of God on someone who is quite convinced that there is a God is a bit patronising and can be a bit annoying. So getting the right sign at the right time really comes back to us listening well, doesn't it? find out where someone is, and then we can respond appropriately and intelligently. And we're going to look a little bit later on at all the stages that people go through on their journey of faith so that we can identify them. We need to have been there before them. Well, it goes without saying, doesn't it? 
Those people on that walk with us that Easter weekend were really no use to us until they'd passed us and gone ahead. Only then could they show us what they'd already found. Having said that, they didn't need to be miles ahead of us, just sure enough where that bridge was. Um, So with us, it's no good pointing people to God if we haven't already walked that journey ourselves. But once you've done it, you don't need all the answers up your sleeve. You just show them what you found. I mean that when you become a Christian, you don't need all your theological ducks lined up in a row before you can start talking about God in your life. In fact, I think some of the best and most natural people sharing their faith are those who just come to faith themselves. The other thing is that we need to see each step as significant. I think this is a trap we can fall into, that we think that the only significant step on this journey is the one that takes people from death to life. Now, of course, that is probably the most important step that someone takes, And, of course, there's great joy when that happens. But if we think that is the only important step, then we're going to concentrate all our efforts there and ignore all the other steps along the way. It's like standing at the bridge, at the foot of the bridge, with a sign, hoping that people a mile down the river are going to be able to see it, or they just can't. The other great thing about realising that each step is significant is that it frees us from what I like to call evangelistic guilt syndrome, or eggs for short. Now, you're going to be able to tell I'm a doctor from this, I'm sorry. Uh, The causes of eggs... <laughs> I thought that. <laughs> yes, inherited condition, yeah. Um, I think this syndrome develops in Christians who know that they should be telling people about Jesus. They might even have tried in the past to help people across that bridge, but been unsuccessful. Maybe they've kind of put their foot right in it somewhere. It can also develop in people who've just been too scared to even try because they think they might mess it up. What is point three of the gospel again? Or, oh, I just don't know how to answer that question on suffering. I'll just shut up. So the person developing this syndrome decides that the best thing for it is to not try at all to leave it to the evangelists. But deep down they know that they're not obeying God, that they need to be showing their faith. And the symptoms of eggs, guilt, fear, feelings of inadequacy, retreat into church, disengagement with the world, despair maybe, religion, filling life with religious works to try and make it up to God, Works, not grace, although we might not say it like that. Now, with any syndrome, you only need two or three of these symptoms for you to qualify for it. And, of course, it's going to be much more developed in some people than others. But I think for most of us, we might live with a little bit of guilt and fear and kind of think it's normal. So is there a treatment for it? Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think the good news is that there is one. Most syndromes don't have treatment, so this is really good news. <laughs> the first part of the treatment is to realise, I think, that the people we know are on a journey. And that our job is to help them towards God for that part of it. Listening to the Holy Spirit for direction and wisdom. That's kind of the next part of the treatment, is knowing, really, that we're in partnership with God. He's doing his part, and all he's asking us to do is to do our part at that particular time. And each step of the journey needs a different approach, and we're going to come on to that in detail later. I think the other part of the cure is to realise that um, we'll not always walk the entire journey with somebody. We might be there for a really small part of it, and we might not know or see the fruits of what we've, how we've been obedient. Maybe not until we get to heaven. So thinking that you're a failure evangelistically, if you've never taken anyone across that bridge, is a lie. To keep you imprisoned by guilt. If, if you've been obedient to God, helping your friends as he's called you to on each part of their journey. Sorry. What about the prognosis? Well, actually, it's very good if you'll take the treatment. I think it's absolutely curable if you will take the treatment. So I want to look at the journey to faith in a bit more detail um, so that we can be equipped to identify where our friends are on the journey and respond appropriately. Now, I wonder if any of you have heard this, the angle scale. Well, you're looking blank, so maybe you haven't. The angle scale is a way of trying to describe the journey to faith someone takes. Uh, in case you're wondering why it's got a funny name, it's named after Mr. Engel, who was a missionary in Thailand, and he's the guy who thought it up. He recognised that most people come, become Christians through a process rather than a, the result of a single event. So I need to try and explain to you what it is. And I've got these lovely sheets, which I've hidden because they're too scary to give out at the beginning, which I'm going to give out now. Okay. This pass goes around. Now, please don't run out the door. You need one each and a pen. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and it is. <laughs> so this is basically the Engel scale, okay? It's a numerical scale. It tries to describe this journey in a numerical way. And it goes from minus 10 <clears throat> to zero as the point of repentance and faith and carries on to a positive number as we continue the journey 
I have to tell you, there are many versions of this scale out there. I, I found four when I was looking last week. And they're all slightly different. Um, but the, the idea, no matter which scale you use, is the same. And I, the scale I'm going to be using is kind of a, a mix of different ones that I've found. So on your piece of paper, you can see that I've got this scale at the bottom, minus 10, there's a zero there, and then the positive journey at the other side. Now don't worry about the letters, because we're going to fill those in as we go along. All right? So in the top box, you might want to fill in what I say about each stage. The middle box is, we're going to cover that later, it's about God's role. And the bottom box is something else I'll do later on. Okay? You're right. Now, don't worry about this too much. I don't want you to get really bogged down in the detail. It's just to give you a flavour of this. Um, you don't have to memorise it. It's just to give you an idea. Yeah, I'll be testing you later. So let's start with minus 10. Most people start with minus 10 with a sense that there maybe is a God out there somewhere. A kind of sense of otherness. Some people have called it a God framework. Now, of course, you might have noticed that some people don't even seem to get on the scale. I found another scale that started at minus 12, actually, with a position of there is no God at all. Um, and I would say that one of my family members is a minus 12. Uh, so how does somebody get from off the scale onto this minus 10? Well, I think God brings them to a point of facing the implications of their beliefs. That's how he does it. Somebody who believes that there's no God gets faced with the reality of that and, is, and, and thinks it through, maybe. Thinks through the, the outcome of a universe without God, the emptiness and futility that that brings. You might start to think, my life is pointless and futile. All human life is pointless the universe is pointless. That's the logical conclusion of a no-God framework. Most people, if they start to face those kind of questions, they can't stay there for long. It's too painful. So they'll move quickly then to the, well, maybe there is a God, minus 10. Minus 9, people move to minus, minus 9 from maybe there is a God to, well, I probably believe there is a God out there somewhere. Now, I think this is probably as far as somebody will get on their own. And actually, lots of people will stop here and never get any further. And they don't then set out on the journey, unless something happens. And minus eight, I think maybe God sends us in at this point. Minus eight is when they start to wonder, so they've thought, hmm, I probably believe there is a God. And then they start to wonder, well, if there is a God... Do you think he can be known? They wonder if God can be known. <coughs> starting to, so, so as they're starting to think like this, this is quite risky. This is risky for them to start thinking this way. The possibility of a God becomes personal. Minus seven, people start to become aware of Jesus. Now, of course... 
many of our friends will have a vague awareness of the Christian faith before this stage. <coughs> but maybe till now they've not been able to see that Jesus has anything to do with them or even their search for God. So they need to discover at this stage that Jesus can offer them a way to get to know God better. And that's not as obvious as it sounds. It might sound obvious to us, but actually most people in Britain think that Christianity and therefore Jesus has been, has been tried and found wanting. We live in this post-Christian culture. Christianity has been tried and it's found wanting. They think science has disproved Christianity. And they also think, because they live in a Christian, ex-Christian country, that they know what the gospel is. And the other thing they might think is that Christianity has got nothing to do with spirituality at all. Now, we know that those lies, but at this stage, people need to discover that to be able to see that Jesus is, is uh, relevant to them. So minus six, an interest in Jesus starts to develop. Now, the door's really starting to open here. If someone is willing to look at Jesus as a way to find what they're looking for, the door really is opening. Now, unfortunately, lots of people get stuck here. Sometimes people even get into church and never get any further than this. Sometimes people seem satisfied in doing the church thing, doing their little bit for God, and they never get challenged to move on any further than this. Maybe that's why our richest mission field seems to be from within the church. Now, of course, people need to experience church you know, our strange culture and community for a while to try us out. And that's fine, that's as it should be, but we don't want people sticking here. We want to move them on to minus five. And in minus five, people be, start to become aware that there's something more to life than what they found so far. And, they, and, and usually it's something like they experience Christian love. So we're involved in this. They experience Christian love, and they start to think, well, well, how do people love like that? Because that's not normal. And they start to wonder, is it some kind of divine love that Christians are showing? They start to see God as real in our lives. And they think, do you know, if God is real to them, then maybe I want to know him. Things are really getting exciting now at minus four. At minus four, they're going to hear the gospel message for the first time. I don't mean that they've never heard the story before, or they've never heard the points of the gospel. What I mean is, now it's as if they've heard it for the first time. The penny begins to drop, and the lights start to come on. And hopefully, as that happens, they quickly move to minus three and they actually grasp the fact that they are in need, in personal need of the gospel. Minus three, they're in personal need of the gospel. Now, this is really the crux of the matter. But in it, we're kind of entirely dependent on God's spirit, convicting people. Do you know, you can actually tell people till you're blue in the face that they're a miserable sinner... But until God reveals it to them, you're just not going to be able to force them any further. 
So hopefully at minus three, they become personally aware of their need for the gospel. And once they're convicted, they move (coughs) on to minus two, desperately wanting to know what the gospel is. And then they begin to grasp that the gospel is costly, that Jesus has to be saviour and lord, and that's really important. And then in minus one, the challenge. They've they've discovered their personal need. They've discovered the gospel facts. They know they're in need. What are you going to do about it? Hopefully that challenge will come at the right moment. Then, praise God, zero, repentance and faith. You're all still alive, that's good. Now, uh, obviously, from then on, plus, plus one, plus two, plus three, plus four, um, people should move through and through baptism, uh, being transformed by his spirit, becoming a member of the church, maturing in the faith, that kind of thing. So, in that second group of boxes there, we're going to look, think about God's role in this. What is, what is his role at each of these stages? What's he doing? Because he's doing something. So the, the letters, uh, uh, the capital letters are the beginning of a word. And you can fill in if you want to, to describe what God is doing. Right back there at minus 10, God is confirming and revealing himself to people. And that goes on, minus 10 to minus 8, probably. And then God is guiding. God guides people into the path of Christians, I think. Uh, And he's uh, guiding people, minus 7 to minus 5, probably. And then he's convicting, minus four to minus two. Someone mentioned that earlier. It's God's spirit who convicts, not us. And then he's converting. And then we know about this, transforming and empowering. to get your heads around. I don't want you to get stuck in the detail of it. It's just an idea so that you can try and think about it. Now, in a minute, we're going to think about uh, what our role is in this at each stage. But first, I thought a couple of questions would be good at this stage. And what I want you to do is to think of two non-Christian people that you know well And I want you to try and decide where you think they would go on this scale. Actually, this is quite difficult, if you haven't thought about it. Have a little go at that. And if you've managed to do that for two of your friends, have a a little aside question, but what happens if people get to minus eight on the scale but don't know a Christian? And then we'll discuss it together. Now, there's a couple of things that I think are really important about this to think about um, before we move on. 
And, uh, and that is that we're not using this scale in order to box people in. <coughs> it's really, really important. We're not trying to put people in boxes. People are different, and they may well seem to go up and down a little bit sometimes, or just not fit quite into the scale. Um, and our job is not to try to box them in, or to force them to commit to a particular stage, just so that we can satisfy our intellectual curiosity. It's not what it's about. The reason about for this scale is to think about people treating people as individuals, actually, um, to discover where they are at the moment, because we, we have to listen to them to find out where they are. And once we know where they are, we can behave appropriately, point them at the scale, treat them as individuals. It's really important. The other really, really important thing is that you never tell your Christian friends where you think they are on the scale. All right? The worst possible thing you could do with this is go, go to your mate tomorrow and say, do you know what? I found out last night that you're minus seven on the angle scale. <laughs> I mean, that would be just so insulting. They would think you were boxing them in. It would be a really easy way to alienate your friends. So please, don't do it. In fact, if I hear anything, <laughs> no, really, serious trouble, and I'm quite scary sometimes. How <laughs> many you know that? So we're, we're talking about treating people as individuals because we love them. So how do we um, use this scale? Uh, sorry, how does this scale actually relate to the steps? Now, maybe some of you might have been thinking, ooh, this rings a little bell here. Ah, do you this? this? This this line at the bottom, somebody stole that from Mr. Engel, I think. Um, here they are, you know these, don't you? Our steps. Uh, you can see, can't you, the idea of the journey is exactly the, the same. It's a journey of steps that we take. And in our steps, there are four steps to take between uh, getting on the step and repentance and faith. Here we go. On the step, getting to know Christians. I just wonder which number on the angle scale you think this relates to. Oh, Andrew's looking all smug. Do you think? Anywhere up to minus five. Yeah, I, I, yes, I, I think, yeah, it could be anywhere, you're right. I think, I said earlier about minus eight, about them thinking about maybe God could be known. If we get in at that point, get people on the step, they get to know Christians, then they'll start to think maybe Jesus is the way or what you have is a way to get to know God. So, you know, we, we don't care, we'll get in anywhere to get to know them, but if, when we talked about if people don't meet a Christian at minus eight, they're probably going to look somewhere else. So I think maybe on the step would start at minus eight, and we could start before that. I know a couple of minus twelves. We talked about earlier. What about the discovery step? Getting to know the gospel. 
Where does that fit, do you think, in our angle scale? Minus five, minus four, and minus three. Mm. Anybody else? Mm. So, I thought minus four, minus three, but I quite like the idea of minus seven and minus six. <laughs> 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 yeah, I think this is true. They, they do overlap. Um, you have my older their personal need. I think there's a distinction. Mm-hmm. And then the questioning step, exploring the gospel, where does that fit? Minus three, minus two. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought too. And this one's easy, isn't it? Zero, yeah. So you might want to think because we're used to this in kind of um, and obviously this carries on because it's positives now right but you know we're not talking about that um, you might want to think in these broader categories you're not getting bogged down in the detail there you go oh, fab um, not getting bogged down in the detail of maybe the minus this that and the other but just to think in the broader sweep of things you know, that might help some of us okay? we're familiar with this so now we've looked at that, I, I wonder how do we use this then to help us? I want us to think about what is it that God wants us to do. So we've talked about what God does and we're in partnership with him. What does he want us to do at each stage of a person's journey? And I've called these the evangelistic P's so that you can remember them. Now that you can see that on your on your sheet there's um, peas, and you're going to fill them in now. And, and I know some of you have been trying to guess what they are. Now this this. anybody want to guess? No. Anyway, the first P. So on your sheet, that first P. I know there are three in minus ten. One of them. Is, is this presence? <laughs> I mean, what do I mean by presence? I mean living your life in front of your friends. So it's the witness of deeds, not words. And we do this as individuals, don't we? But also as a church community. <laughs> so as a, a, a Bible verse example in Philippians it says do everything without arguing and complaining so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and deprived generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life so the idea is that you we live our lives we shine like stars we share our lives with people and people see the difference 
So we try and touch people's lives by helping them and loving them. So which part of the angles? I mean, you can see it's in minus 10, but this, this is not just in one category. It's spread, all right? So what, what, what part do you think presence would play in the, the majority of the, the role? Yeah, it is everywhere. But, but sometimes it's one of the only things you can do. Can blank at me. Okay, so I'm going to go from minus 12 because we talked about that. What do you do with minus 12s? It's about living your life in front of people. Up to minus 9, minus 8, that kind of thing. That's maybe the only thing you can do. There are others in those boxes you will come back to later, but the, you know, God wants us to, to respond in that situation by our presence, the witness of our lives. Um, and of course that would, on the step thing, that would apply to on the step, we're just living our lives in front of our friends. I think most of us would find this P of evangelism not too difficult, wouldn't we? Hopefully. We can all live our lives in front of people. And some of us actually particularly good at helping uh, and showing um, God's love practically. I, I think what most people have difficulty with is moving on the stage from here. And, you know, there comes a point where we need to recognise that our deeds need to change into words as people move up the scale. The next P, which goes in that minus 8 box, if you're wondering, it's not the one, it's not the one underneath in minus 10, this is the one in minus 8. You're right. Prayer. No? <laughs> Preparation. You wouldn't have guessed that, would you? <laughs> Get quiet at the back, please. <clears throat> what I mean is, um, at this stage, people is, uh, God is calling us to prepare our friends to receive the gospel. We've been living our life in front of our friends, and he's starting to ask us to prepare them. Minus eight, they're thinking, oh, maybe I can know God. You, you're preparing now. And to do this, what do we do? Well, we tell people how real Jesus is to us. This is about telling your story. It's preparing people for hearing the gospel. So uh, in 1 Peter 3.15 it says, But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect talking about giving uh, a reason for the hope that we have that's about telling our story telling people how real Jesus is they're asking can I know God uh, and you're saying yeah you can because I know him so it moves from um, you're saying you don't just know about God I know him and people start to think um I wonder which step you think this one is related to. Uh, I'm talking about the steps now. Sorry. On the step? Possibly. It could be the discovery step. I think they overlap. Yeah, so minus eight to maybe minus five, I would say. 
Don't worry. Okay. Okay, the next P, which is going in minus four. Oh, Anna. <laughs> we'll do one for you later. The next P, oh, this is a tricky one. Proclamation. All right. I think this is probably where most of us get a little bit scared, maybe. Oh, you messed it up, Anna. Start again. <laughs> At, at this point, God really is asking us to proclaim the gospel, isn't he? <coughs> so, uh, we've lived our lives, we've told our story, but there comes a point we actually have to share God's story with our friends. Where do you think this fits? Obviously, it starts at minus four, it's probably quite straightforward, minus four to minus one. Uh, and on the steps, I thought it was probably both discovering and questioning. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad you agree. <laughs> I just want to read you something from um, Colossians chapter 4. Paul is saying, and, and, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. There's no getting away from it. We've got to proclaim the gospel. We've got to explain it to people. I want to tell you a secret. Proclaiming the gospel doesn't just mean telling them it all at once. It can include um, asking questions about what they believe to be true. Do you remember back at the beginning I said, you might not, but I said that um, people think they know what Christianity is. People living in Britain in this post-Christian country think they know what Christianity is. Um, and because of that misconception, sometimes we need to, to think about, get them to think about what they believe. Because most people haven't thought it through. So you try to get them to examine their position... Uh, and get them to draw the obvious conclusion, and then they might be willing to listen to you explaining what the gospel is. They might even ask you, well, what is it? What, what is Christianity then? Um, and they might be more willing to hear once you've listened to them and found out actually what they think. Also, we can proclaim by providing um, reading material. You don't have to do it, you know, out if, if that's difficult for you, you could give somebody <coughs> something, a book, give reading material if you want to. And uh, the good news is that next Digging Deeper, we're going to look specifically at how we explain the gospel, how we proclaim it, um, because I think this is probably the most scary bit for people. How do I explain the gospel to somebody without, you know, tripping over my tongue or something um, in a way that seems natural most people find that really difficult so we're going to look at that in detail next time so what have we had so far presence, preparation proclamation and then we've got power 
Um, I think in the mix of all of this is power. I mean, God's power. Jesus said in Acts 1, didn't he? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. We're not doing this in our own power. We're doing it in God's power. And, and Paul, I mean, he says a number of different things to a number of different churches. Uh, to the Thessalonians, he said, Brothers loved by God, we know that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. And Paul said this to the Corinthian church, and this amazes me. He said, I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, wisdom, but on God's power. So, you know, we don't have to be working up persuasive words. This is really a, a, a topic on its own, probably, isn't it? Uh, but we have to realise that we're, it's not our words alone that do the work. We're in partnership with God, and it's God's power that's needed. Uh, and I think uh, power probably fits in. That's that P in minus three, God's power. I mean, it, it fits in the whole thing, but particularly here, as we're looking at the convicting and converting thing, God's power is needed. And we need it, you know, to be able to, to explain the gospel. Now, the P that you've got in zero might seem a bit funny. Why has she got a P in zero? And the other thing, this might sound a little bit contradictory at, at first, but this P is persuasion. I don't mean persuasion in the bad sense of the word. <laughs> uh, I don't mean pressure. I don't mean, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I mean it as encouragement. Uh, I mean the process of encouraging those who've got to zero to become part of the church, to join the community of believers and grow. Um, I think our evangelism, our job, isn't really finished, is it, when people pray the prayer, unfortunately. Um, and you know that we're called to make disciples, not converts. So encouraging people to join the church and become fully devoted followers of Jesus is part of the journey. And that obviously uh, fits in zero to plus two, probably. Now there's a couple of other P's that you might have spotted right at the beginning, and they would, would uh, cover everything. And one of them, one of you, somebody's guessed it already, is prayer. Okay, so I've got two these left. This is prayer. So this fits in everywhere. But I think sometimes it's it's probably the only thing you can do with presence. Prayer and presence is sometimes the only thing you can do. And then the last P, which is everywhere as well, is provide resources. I think God calls us to be providers for our friends. We need to think, you know, what is it that God wants us to provide for this person at this stage in their journey and then provide it? And it, it, it might be, you know, it might be a book, it might be a shoulder to cry on, it might be practical help, 
uh, a CD, a film, a listening year, whatever it is that our friends need, God asks us to provide it. And we kind of have to be brave enough sometimes to take the risk to do that, to provide the resource. So there you go, the peas. I think now would be a great time for coffee, and we're going to have some questions, and then it's very short at the end, all right? Sons of Faith has helped you to see the value and significance of each step, and how we can partner with God at each step in a new and exciting way. I hope you can see that you can be the right signpost at the right time for your friend, and I hope that you can see that we each have a vital role to play, uh, and that to be effective, we need each other. We can't all walk the entire journey with someone, uh, but we're all called at times to to be a presence and to proclaim using our story. And And I hope that you can see that no particular role is more important than any other. You know that uh, I've had the privilege a few times of helping somebody get from minus four to zero. And do you know what? I love it. I think it's the best thing in the world. really is. Um, But, do you know, I need someone to have been there travelling with the people before, uh, before they get to that point. I can't physically travel the entire journey with everybody uh, because it takes time and commitment. So... Um, we need you guys as much as you guys need me and the rest of the evangelism team, which is called the Reach Team, if you haven't heard. And I want to finish with a story um, to show you kind of how this works in practice. And this story is about our friend Tez. And I have asked her if I could tell this story, and she was more than happy. Um, all of you know, I think, that Tess was baptised in December and uh, she became a Christian in November. Three weeks into us doing Christianity Explored together. And I have to tell you that I was utterly amazed at how fast she got from minus four to zero. Uh, and it was a real great privilege to be involved and walk that little part of the journey with her. But you see, the reality of it was that it took Tess years to get to minus six. And that there were really loads of people that God used along the way. Uh, as a teenager, she moved to the USA and she came into contact with Christians. <clears throat> She'd always known there was a God, uh, but she started to wonder, could he really be known? And then she sat for ten years in a Christian church in the States, stuck, at the awareness of Jesus stage. And it was only when God brought her here and she gave up a demanding full-time job so she had time to think that her interest started to kindle. She experienced, and she'll tell you this, real Christian love here. And she remembered all those Christians who'd loved her along the way. And the searching really started. I step in here, and in three short weeks, she's decided to follow Jesus. I could not have helped her along that little part of the journey if she hadn't already travelled the rest of it with somebody else. Uh, And Tess has given me permission to share an email that she received from one of her friends, one of those people, and her friend's name is Jane. They were neighbours and friends in the States. 
Jane was a Christian. And Jane and her husband had rather resourcefully looked after Tez and Kevin's house when they were away. This is what she wrote when Tez let her know that she'd become a Christian. This is great. Tez, I cannot tell you how excited my entire family was after receiving your email. The girls don't do email, so I printed a copy off for each of them. They were ecstatic. Keith came bounding out of his office after he read it. He was thrilled. I cried, squealed, praised God, jumped up and down, you name it. I have a confession. Last summer, while you were away and we were house-sitting, I taught a ladies' Bible study on a Wednesday night. The scripture, scripture passage that was being taught was the woman at the well. The night that I taught it, it was on the perspective of the living water. As an activity, we made name tags. <laughs> on the tag, we put the name of an unsaved friend. Then we attached it to a bottle of water. We were then to give the bottle to the friend or put it in a place where you could see it every day and pray for the friend. I put your name on the bottle I made. I put it in my closet where I would see it every time I walked in. Walked in? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I cannot tell you how thrilled I was to know that, that you now have Jesus' living water inside you, just as I had prayed. I am so happy for you. I thought that was fantastic. She, what did she do? She prayed. She had presence. She provided. She prepared, probably. And then all I had to do was proclaim. And there were many other people in Tez's story. So maybe one day you might get an email or a letter from a friend, just like Jane did, just because you are willing to provide what your friend needed, and wouldn't that be worth the risk? Should we just pray before? Father, I, I just want to thank you so much that you, you decide to partner with us, that you do your bit and you want us to do our bit. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust you to do your bit with our friends and our family. Pray you'd give us boldness and courage and wisdom to know what to say, what to do at the particular time. Help us to discover where our friends are and to uh, treat them as individuals, Lord, and love them and show them what you need to show them at that particular time. I just thank you that we don't have to be weighed down by guilt, but that we can be free free to be ourselves and to share um, you with others. Lord, I, I pray you'd help us, each one of us, uh, to do that with our friends and our family more and more.